Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. Today has a live audience from the Upgrade Collective. No, that's not poop. I'm sorry, guys. I was just calling you names. The Upgrade Collective is my membership and mentorship group who I tease mercilessly as we go through the year learning all of my books. If you're interested in being a live studio audience, ourupgradecollective.com. It's super fun. And there's, oh, dozens of people dialed in right now watching this episode, hearing all the weird stuff that I'm saying to today's guest before anyone else. Today's guest, speaking of such things like poop, is a research microbiologist and he studies the human microbiome and how it affects your gut, your immune system, and things like that. This is someone named Kiran Krishnan and he's been on the show before. Uh, he's with Just Thrive, uh, a probiotic and uh, other gut health kind of company. But there is so much going on around immune systems and around what we're learning very recently about your gut. So, Kieran, it is so good to have you back. I love just geeking out with you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Dave, for having me. It's awesome to be on uh not all microbiologists have a sense of humor, and if they <laughs> do, it's right. super nerdy. So you have a pretty good one. I'm, I'm going to give you a pass on that. Thank you, thank you. No, they don't. They don't let most of them out of the lab. I somehow broke out, um, and I was like, "Listen, let me among the people, so I can translate all the things you guys are doing for the people." So that that's become a big part of my role is just translating the world of the unseen microbes. Uh, to meaningful um, information for people to be able to utilize, change their lives. That, that's the problem. And I've been struggling with this for years. Yeah. Okay, you fast forward or fast forward reverse, uh, whatever that is called, fast backward <laughs> to 20 years ago. Okay, I was the room clearing guy mm -hmm. uh, anytime I ate. And people would ask at the beginning of the Bulletproof Diet, hey, what's your advice if I have really bad gas? And my advice was always get a dog. <laughs> right. uh, so you can blame the dog. Right? <laughs> and because uh, this was one of my many strategies to deal with, with the problem before I got to it. And then I said, oh, I think it's a fungal microbiome thing. I think it's a bacterial. And then you find out there's tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of bacteria that could be there. And and then there's the ratios and balances and turning into actual information has been a very long journey for me. Yeah. But what I do see is the ratios of bacteriodides and firmicutes, they, they shift when people go bulletproof. But how the heck do you know now what to do in the gut when you're looking at this incredible complexity versus what you knew 10 years ago? Like, what's different? Yeah, so the, the, the biggest difference uh, difference that we we now have at our fingertips is the use of metagenomics, which is a sequencing technology, right? So that gives us an opportunity to not only figure out exactly who's there, because the, the crazy thing about it is the vast majority of microbes that live in your gut can't survive outside the human body, many of them for even seconds. So they're mostly anaerobic, right? So the moment we bring them out in stool and, when, and then we start trying to plate them from stool, meaning grow them in Petri dishes, we end up, most of them end up dying. And so you you can't study them when they're alive. So the only way to really understand who's there and in what quantities to study the DNA that's present. Um, so you have to become a sequencing detective and you need massive amounts of computing capability 
to look through all of that DNA, right? So just to give an example, our human DNA, we have somewhere around 22,000 functional genes when we se sequence a whole human genome front and front to back. Um, in, our, in our gut microbiome, we have over two and a half million functional genes when we sequence all of the bacterial DNA in there. So it's a massive data stack. And then making sense of that data is really the hardest part about it, right? So you can sequence it, you get millions of pages of data, and then you have to run all that data through to software that assembles all of the bacterial cultures and uh, ecosystems and all of that. So that advancement's really given us the insight into understanding this ecosystem. So there are a, a variety of ways of looking at what's going on with your gut bacteria. Um, right. And mm -hmm. I, I feel like I've interviewed many experts in the field uh, and this is you know your third time mm -hmm. coming in here. Uh, it, it seems like like every two years I'm seeing, oh, there's a whole bunch of new species. Oh, we didn't know this or this species is associated with Parkinson's or not having Parkinson's and all this sort of stuff. And I'm sitting here going, all right, I'm going to say I, I like to think I'm smarter than the average bear or at least I'm more informed than the average bear. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm having a hard time knowing, all right, what's actionable when I see a study that says this species is really good for you? Because right. either you take its food, which is usually polyphenols or fiber, <laughs> or <laughs> you take the probiotic version if you can buy it. Yep. Is that kind of, are those the only two tools we have? You know, then the, the other tool is the uh, are microbes that have a way of affecting the ecosystem. Uh, oh, great. So they all fight each other. Yeah, <laughs> so you might right. take like the enemy of the good one or something. <laughs> yes, there are ways of doing that. And, and here's what's interesting about it, right? We, so we as a species ourselves have not developed any capability of kind of going in and modulating our own microbiome, right? All of these organisms, trillions of cells, thousands of different species live in our GI tract and live in our body, on our body and everywhere else, we don't have the capability of going in and manipulating that ecosystem in order to affect change in a positive way, right? So we count on other microbes to be able to do that for us. And the assumption in nature is that there are certain microbes that we were always going to be within close proximity of or work with in a symbiotic manner. And those microbes are the ones that we've outsourced this job to. And that's a really interesting concept. When you think about like, we have such limited amount of genetic capability as a species, right? We barely have enough genetic material as an earthworm does. And so we're not that cool or sophisticated. What makes us that sophisticated as we are is the two and a half million or so microbial genes in our system. And so being able to outsource functionality to microbes is a big part of being human. So there are sets of organisms that we have outsourced through the course of evolution, the ability to modulate and monitor the, the rest of the microbiome. And so we're finding that when you start putting in these microbes back into your system, you really start getting the positive changes. They start refereeing the ecosystem and making things uh, more balanced and improved. I, I think I get it. <laughs> <laughs> or like basically you you have a herd of cats or you have an ecosystem. Yep. Um, I also am not sure, and I, I want you to stress test this for me. Um, you say the human genome is, is limited, mm -hmm. but 
what percentage of our genome is from viruses? Ah, that's a in within our system itself, right? So viruses probably make up somewhere around eight to ten percent of the total genetic material in our system. Um, the virome is pretty large, and the virome is pretty diverse, but it's not anywhere as close as the microbes, the the bacteria, at least. Um, oh yeah, you know, but but they're there, they're present, and they do make up a, a measurable amount of the of the genetic material that's within us. So, and the genetic material, I don't mean viruses like floating around in your gut or in your tissues. I mean that are incorporated into human DNA, right? That's the 90%. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, and it's hard to say how, where our genes came from, right? Uh, we okay. know that each one of our cells have ancient pleiotropic bacteria in there. Our mitochondria are essentially of ancient, ancient bacteria. So we've got a lot of DNA that we've collected from from many different organisms, including- From bacteria plants. and from viruses. And viruses right? as well, yeah. So, mm-hmm. So there, there are a group of people, and I think they're right, who believe that some part of evolution uh, is driven by picking up viruses from the ocean, which is, as mm-hmm. a lot of people don't know, incredibly full of viruses. Mm-hmm. In fact, you want to get a cold uh, with a 30% greater chance of getting a cold, go swimming in the ocean mm-hmm. yep, for sure. <laughs> because you pick up viruses. And it's not a bad cold. It's an immune modulating cold. Yeah. Um, so that means that the human genome is extended into our environment because we pick up new genes when necessary or maybe when we don't want them from viruses that are floating around. Yeah. And it's kind of a normal part of what humans do. So so you can either say I am an island or I am part of this ecosystem that includes all these viruses that are part of my genome. And I, I'm starting to think that they're part of our genome or we're part of the Earth's genome. Yeah. Do you ascribe to that or am I a little bit too hippie for you? No, I think you're I think you're right on the money. I mean I I've always referred to the to the human system as a walking, talking rainforest, right? We are a holobiont, which is a super organism. We are an organism made up of a collective of organisms um, that together in a certain balance will function and work. But we are also in constant osmosis with the ecosystem. And we're designed to be that way. Um, you know, I think that this, the success of the Homo sapiens sapien comes from our ability to adapt to our environments by picking up features and all that from the environment. A, a great example of this, and this is not virus specific, but it's ocean related. If you look at Japanese people, right, when you look at their microbiomes of the Japanese people, they have these unique genes that code for an enzyme called beta porphyrinase that helps them break down seaweed. That's not a normal yeah. gene to have, and their microbes seem to have it. And it's not normal for those versions of the microbes to have it. So, But as it turns out, their microbes picked up that uh, gene from microbes in fish. And so as, wow. as they keep eating fish, right? Because now that's a sustainable, important feature for them because they eat a lot of seaweed. So yeah, we absolutely are constant osmosis with the environment. We're picking up DNA, RNA from viruses, bacteria, amoebas, protozoas, virtually everything. Um, and there's also um, lots of what we call inter-kingdom communication, meaning from completely different kingdoms on the phylogenetic tree, we can pick up DNA from things like plants, from leaves, oh, yeah. right? This microRNA, which are these tiny little things of RNA that can swim from a plant cell that we're eating and then get into our genes and change gene expression within our system, you know, and that may be some of the ways that these nutrients benefit us actually by changing those gene expressions. And, and that's the same microRNA that's in the most controversial new uh, medical drug 
that's out there. That's well, right. not exactly the same. It's the same type of thing, but different mRNAs can do many different things. Yep. And and this is why, guys, you're listening to the show. I am extremely interested in mRNA technology. Mm-hmm. Okay, I believe that about 40% of aging is caused by inflammation and inappropriate immune system activation. And by the way, 30 years from now, when I'm still looking and feeling exactly like I do now, if not better, um, I'll be saying, I told you so, I told you so, I told you so. Mm-hmm. Like, mark my words, episode whatever this is. And maybe it's 39%, but I'm within you know a standard deviation of 40%. Mm-hmm. So if that's the case, we need mRNA. And we need it from our food, and we probably need to take control of that so we can use mRNA to turn off diabetes and heart disease and all that. So um, do not be an anti-vaxxer <laughs> because you might want a vaccine for something that is a clear and present danger to you as you age where you look at the risk and the benefits and you go, oh, my God, that's totally worth it. Oh, and I got clean data. Right. <laughs> the other little problem we have right now. Right. Okay, so don't say drugs are bad. Don't say any technology is bad. Okay, you can use lasers to shoot down bad people or to like heal a, a wound faster. So lasers aren't good or bad. Neither are shovels. You can hit people with them and you can dig holes. So don't be a zealot. Yeah, for or against anything except for butter and kale. <laughs> be against kale before butter. As long as you have those right, everything else is optional. Yeah. All right, so sorry, I'll get off my my high horse there, but mRNAs are not inherently bad. Nature uses them. Is that what I just heard? Oh my God, we have thousands of mRNA fragments in our system every single minute of every single day. That's how things go from DNA to protein, right? mRNA is the messenger okay. in, the, in the middle. And we just did a metabolic health study looking at changes to the microbiome and improving metabolic health. One of the ways that we study changes in our own metabolic health is by doing an mRNA blast of the, which is a huge sequence check on all the mRNA in our system. The, it's massive, massive amounts of data. Every single second of every single day, we're generating mRNA. It's, it, that's that's one of the things that puzzled me about this whole crisis that's going on. I'm like, all of a sudden, mRNA is some sort of weird, vicious, uh, toxic thing when we have millions and millions of strands of mRNA in our system every single day. So, yeah, I think you're not off that on that at all. It's okay. It, it's nice to be able to uh, have the freedom to select which mRNAs are floating mm-hmm. around. Right. <laughs> there, there's that whole, you know, biological autonomy thing, yep. uh, which I am absolutely uh, supporting here. So this is not to say that you should allow others to uh, inject you with uh, any bodily fluid without your permission uh, or anything else without your permission. Like sure. It's your body. You get to say. So uh, one of the things I like about your work, Kieran, is that uh, you're not just kind of in in the lab looking at stuff. You're doing human clinical trials, yeah. and you've done dozens of them. But you've done some really cool stuff around leaky gut. Yeah, and I take that personally because leaky gut was a major part of unwrapping what's going on with me. And I have a lot less, and usually none. But I mean, none is a very fine thing to say. Yeah. Uh, and all of us have some degree of stuff that passes through or we probably wouldn't have very functioning guts. So what have you learned about leaky gut in the trials you've done now that's very different than what we would have known 10 or 20 years ago? 
Yeah. So um, a couple of really interesting things. One of the interesting things is that you cannot tell who has leaky gut, right? So you you would think that people are somewhat symptomatic of it. Um, you would you would think that you could look at somebody and predict how healthy their gut is and how healthy their their intestinal lining is, but it's impossible to tell. I mean, one of the studies we did and we published, we use young, healthy, normal individuals, right? And of course, healthy, normal is a very gray definition, but the way the FDA defines it is really people with without any diagnosed chronic illness, not being managed for anything, not on any medications, no reported symptoms or issues at all. The average age is about 22. Um, and they were all of normal body weight. So, you know, within within the spectrum of just having normal composition and 55% of them had very severe leaky gut, you know, to a point where it was, it was very dramatic on the inflammatory uh, response that the leaky gut created. So, my, so the way we understand it as we've progressed through the different research that we've done is that you likely have some degree of leaky gut all the time. Right. We have, of course, 20 something feet of intestines. So any portion of your intestines can be leaky at any given time. The, the moment you start exceeding a certain limitation on the num on the, on the amount of your intestines that are leaky, that's when it starts becoming really clinically relevant. Right. So as your intestine becomes leaky for whatever reason, you know, a bad meal, uh, a toxin you got exposed to, whatever it may be, your, your system is designed to fix that. And then some other part gets a little bit leaky and then it fixes it. Another part gets leaky and it fixes it. But as the repair slows down with dysbiosis and more and more of the intestinal lining becomes leaky, over time that becomes clinically relevant. And so it's not a – people think of leaky gut as like a um, – as a – as a static state, like my gut is leaky or my gut is not leaky. It's a dynamic state. It's constantly somewhat leaky. But if the net result is a significant leakiness in the gut, then that's going to become clinically relevant. How quickly does the lining of the intestine turn over? Oh, so you can completely turn over full lining of your intestine within about two or three days. So, so got, two to three days. Mm -hmm. All right. So we've got a really great opportunity to constantly be healing it, you know, repairing it, keeping it fresh. Um, and so there's a few parts of the body that turn over that quickly, right? So the insides of your mouth often turn over and heal pretty quickly. Um, so certain other soft areas with a lot of abrasion and damage because of eating and things like that are designed to turn over and repair pretty quickly. And your gut is one of those areas. So, so it's... It's easiest to think of it almost like a treadmill. A, a treadmill takes three days to go around all the way, and that's your gut. Mm -hmm. And so if you did something bad one or two or three days ago, you could still be feeling the inflammatory effects, well, possibly even up to 10 days later. But yeah. most of the research that I've seen says usually within four days, most of it hits you. Yep. Absolutely. Right. And that's because of the three day turnover, right? That's right. Yep. Um, and, and the, but here's a, here's a most important aspect of that turnover and that repair is that much of the repair and the turnover is dictated by the microbes that live there. Right. So again, we've outsourced these things to the microbes because we have limited capacity to do these things for ourselves. And so we're, we're counting on certain types of bacteria in order to be able to do that. So I'll give you an example of that. One of the keystone species that's really well known for repairing the gut lining, uh, maintaining low inflammation in the gut lining is a bacteria called Fecalum bacteria prosnitzi. 
And those that have low levels of Fecalum bacteriprosnitsi tend to have much higher um, increased rates of uh, inflammatory bowel disease, so Crohn's and colitis and so on. The reason for that is Fecalum bacteria is a very important member of the repairing committee of your large bowel's lining. And so we all have all kinds of damage occurring in our large bowel all the time. But if you have Fecalum bacteria, it's constantly repairing it. If you don't have Fecalum bacteria, at some point, the damage overcomes the repair and you start getting significant inflammation in the lining, which then puts you at risk for things like inflammatory bowel disease, right? So we're constantly battling this, this um, state of damage, oxidative stress, inflammation, and all that and then repair, recovery, and so on. And as it turns out, microbes are so re- so important for that re- repair and recovery phase. What was the name of that bacteria again? It's called Fecalum bacteria prosnitai. F-A-E-C-L-U-M, what? Yeah, uh, F-A-E-C-L-E-A, Fecali, bacterium, okay. uh, B-A-C-T-E-R-I-U-M, yeah. And then prosnitai is P-R-A-U-Z-N-I-T. I think it's N-I-T-Z-I-I. All right, uh, guys, I'll put those links in the show notes. You go to daveasprey.com slash podcasts. You always find transcripts and all that. Uh, so those are those are interesting things to, to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. When you're looking at this sort of three-day, okay, you're going to injure your gut when you eat almost anything and more likely a, a seed or a grain is going to cause more damage or many vegetables are going to cause damage. Uh, but let's not say it's harmful damage, but they're going to go through there yeah. and then you're going to have to regrow stuff, right? Yep. Uh, and I don't know, I'm assuming that meat and fat probably because it's less abrasive mm-hmm. has less damage, right? It's not that it's designed to heal quickly. So I'm not yeah. saying damage like, oh, into the world. Although frankly, some of those grains might not be good for you. But um, is it a, is it a safe assessment then that less abrasion is going to be good for leaky gut? So abrasion is one aspect of it. Uh, the other aspect is what is the immunological response of the food? Right. So certain things like dairy proteins, for example, and a lot of people will elicit an immunological response where the immunological response itself creates a damage. Um, so it kind of depends on the individual to a certain degree um, and it depends on their lineage, um, you know, and, it, and then it, it depends on what they te- normally eat. So if if you take somebody who's normally meat and potatoes, Midwestern, uh, U.S. you know person, and then you all of a sudden send them over to um, Sweden, and they're eating all kinds of fermented stuff and all that. Even though those <laughs> that food is perfectly normal, Swedes are weird. Man. <laughs> they, they eat a lot of interesting things, right? So a lot of fermented fishes and things like that. They they will um, they will create inflammatory responses in their bowel because their immune system and their microbiome is not used to seeing those foods, and so that will create damage temporarily. Uh, but again, damage is one thing. Repair is the key. Right. So um, at the end of the day, that's the same thing like working out. Right. The, the whole purpose of working out is to create damage, uh, whether it's oxidative damage to your cardiovascular system and all that. And then, of course, to your muscles and all that, you create tears and damage. But that adaptive repair is what kind of gives you that next level of fitness and so okay. on. So. So then what we want to do is we want to create less damage. Mm hmm. 
right? And I'm assuming the first one of them would be abrasion. The second one would be you eat something you're allergic to. It triggers toll-like receptors that trigger mast cells to degranulate. They release heparin. They release histamine and basically set off little nuclear bombs inside the gut. Guys, see why I think aging might be related to uh, immune inflammation? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Is that an accurate picture of the other major cause? That's right. Yeah. Um, So so the the inflammation, I would say, the inflammatory response, I would say, is is the biggest driver of gut-related damage that occurs. Now, you can also, of course, in the modern day, eat foods that are absolutely toxigenic to your microbiome, right? So foods that are- What's the worst? Um, Tell me it's kale. Come on, tell me it's kale. I would say the inflammatory one (laughs) would be first because the damage is pretty immediate uh, and quite profound, right? And and that profound, immediate inflammatory damage has a cascading effect, not not only in your gut, but then for the rest of your system, right? You can measure that kind of inflammation in your brain a few hours after eating. You can measure it in your periphery and so on. Um, and then the toxigenic effects, like if you're eating food that has high levels of Roundup in it uh, or other preservatives and, you know, antimicrobials and so on, that's going to cause dysbiosis and, and, and then drive more inflammation over time. Uh, and then, you know, abrasiveness and, and foods like seeds and tough things that get stuck in, in the little outpocketing of your intestines and all that, that can drive inflammation over time um, as well. But that inflammatory response to food can be quite uh, damaging to the system. Okay. So we have abrasion, inflammatory response to food. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing and I'm kind of leading you down a path here, as you can probably tell, but this is so people have a framework for understanding, like, yeah. okay, there's all these insults I'm throwing onto my little treadmill, right? And then we're, we're going to go into what do we do to make it heal faster? Because it's going to take hits. It just yeah. is. That, that's what it's there for. Yeah. That's why it heals so fast, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. And and that's why it, it has so many repair mechanisms in place, right? And, and the gut lining has all of these layers to it that are designed mm-hmm. to provide a little bit of fallback as damage occurs, a um, lot of feedback loops to tell the system that it's damaged, um, and then lots of microbes in that area. That's where 70, uh, sorry, lots of immune cells in that area. That's where 70, 80% of your immune system lies is in your digestive tract. So your immune system is there ready and waiting to help with the situation. That's also the largest site of exposure that you get to the outside world, right? So that that's another reason why for the proximity of the immune system to the gut, um, almost everything that you get exposed to in large quantities goes through your digestive tract in one way or the other. Um, so, so yeah, everything's sitting there waiting um, and, and, okay. and ready to repair if your, if your system is in, in the right position. One of the compounds that has profoundly affected how I think about guts and brains and, and just the whole anti-aging and biohacking world is good old lipopolysaccharide. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about what that is, where it comes from, and what it does to your gut? Oh, my God. So lipopolysaccharide is um, it is the, um, the, the unknown villain of virtually everything, right? Um, so I, I, before this, I actually just gave a, a couple of lectures on it. One of the lectures are gut-brain lectures. So we talked. I went through all the research on how damaging lipopolysaccharide or LPS is to your brain. And then the one before that was a lecture on uh, lipopolysaccharides and metabolic disease. And so, there how, you, go. you know, how damaging it is, how it's the number one driver 
of diabetes. For example, there's a study called the Cordioprev study. This is a 60-month study, um, sorry, yeah, 60-month study, 490 individuals. They took individuals that were pre-diabetic, uh, and they were following them over 60 months with all kinds of biomarkers that they were measuring to see which biomarker was the best predictor of going from prediabetes to diabetes. And there was only one that they found was the level of LPS lipopolysaccharide in serum. That was the only biomarker that was predictive of going from prediabetes to diabetes, right? So, and it's just, it's mind boggling how disruptive it is. And so, when, when you have this lipopolysaccharide, which we all do because it's made by something called gram-negative bacteria in the gut microbiome. So every bacteria in your microbiome can be distinguished as gram-positive or gram-negative. And that's just a matter of staining them with a particular stain under the microscope called a gram stain. And if they have a cell wall structure, they pick up the stain. So you can look at them and go, ah, they're stained, so they're gram-positive. If they have no cell wall and just a cell membrane, they don't pick up the stain, so they're gram-negative, right? So those gram-negative bacteria that don't have a cell wall, they have this LPS lipopolysaccharide all throughout their cell membrane. Now, the bacteria use it for lots of things. The bacteria use it for communication, for adhesion to the lining of the gut, for um, receptor binding to other bacteria, nutrients, and so on. So when it's in the bacteria, it's not really an issue. But what's happening in the gut is your bacteria is constantly dying and regenerating and so on. Mm-hmm. And every time the bacteria dies, it releases this LPS, so the lipopolysaccharide. Now, this thing is free-floating around in your lumen, in the mucosa. And if it's in the lumen, it's okay. It's not really causing you a whole lot of issue. But if that's allowed to leak through the lining of your gut and enter circulation, it's going to cause little mini nuclear bombs all throughout your body. And that's a big driver of aging. There you go. And and it's it's a tiny molecule. Lipo is fat. And fat is something that can penetrate your gut lining. It's meant to do that. So small droplets of fat, we use that like glutathione, liposomal glutathione, small droplets of fat. The drug companies use liposomal delivery system to bypass all the protections. Yeah. But the polysaccharide, that's a, a complex sugar configuration that can stick onto molecular locks on other cells throughout your body, depending on what it is. Yeah. By the way, guys, lectins, which you've heard me talk about for 10 years, they also stick to polysaccharides in your immune system. So polysaccharides are not good or bad. They're just everywhere. They used to think it was the sugar gunk on cells till they figured out, oh, that's your immune system. <laughs> so, <laughs> But a lipopolysaccharide, the lipo lets it get through the gut and the polysaccharide lets it get there and bad bacteria make this. Mm-hmm. And I believe they have a direct toxic effect on the lumen and the gut itself. So they're, mm-hmm. they're the third major damager on this little treadmill that we're constantly damaging and regrowing as it as it moves through. Yeah. Well, and, makes and sense. yeah, and in fact, most uh, and here's the crazy thing: in all of those three um, damage roads that we talked about, this the the pathways to damage we talked about, LPS is actually a uh, a component of all of those because in any case where there's damage to the lining, whether it's inflammatory or physical damage. LPS is being released because there's always microbial damage as well to to the system, right? And when LPS is released, it more than fivefold amplifies the inflammatory response to that area because what your immune system has learned over time is when it sees LPS, it thinks there are damaging microbes coming in or present. And so LPS is so important for the immune system to keep track of that the immune system produces a protein called LBP, which is LPS binding protein. Mm -hmm. 
And that LBP is constantly swimming around in your circulation looking for LPS. And so if you allow LPS to leak through and LPS levels in the serum and, and circulation increase, LBP is going to find it, bind it, take it to your macrophage or your dendritic cell and tell the macrophage and dendritic cell, holy shit, we've got a massive blood infection going on. That's what your body thinks when LPS comes in. It thinks you're undergoing sepsis. And so the inflammatory response that the immune system has in response to that LPS detection and binding is the same inflammatory response as you get when you have blood poisoning or sepsis. So it's really, really significant. And that can occur in any local area. So it can occur right in your gut lining and continue to damage your gut lining. Or LPS, as pervasive as it is, can enter in, make it to places like the hypothalamus in your brain, the amygdala in the brain, into your joints, into your heart, into your pericardium, all these areas where it drives damage by inflammation. Wow. So so you guys see this? The lipopolysaccharides from bad bacteria in your gut, they're causing damage to the gut on top of whatever weird foods you're eating mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and uh, other things that you might be allergic to. Okay, so we've done all that. And then once this gets through, it's wreaking havoc and it is a direct cause of brain fog. Not the only cause, but a direct cause. It is probably a trigger for Alzheimer's. You think that's likely? Well, so uh, a confirmatory study on that in 2017 published showing that the foundation for the beta placking in the brain of Alzheimer's patients was is started by gut-derived lipopolysaccharides. Yes. Right? So they, they can enrich them in the perinuclear region of the brain. They find that in Alzheimer's patients, they tend to have high levels of LPS in the brain from the gut, and then that triggers the inflammatory damage to the brain and leads to the beta placking. Yeah, it's a driver of, of Alzheimer's. And here's the crazy thing. Not only is it a driver of Alzheimer's, it's also a driver of Parkinson's, the other yep. one we don't want to get, right, as we age. And ALS, almost and ALS. certainly. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right. Um, by the way, I, I know about that because if you guys read Headstrong, most of the research on enhancing mitochondrial function and reducing inflammation in the brain is done on those three conditions. So I read stupid amounts of papers to figure out how the rest of us who don't have those can have better brains now, mm-hmm. as well as not get those later because brain fog sucks. I, I had it for way too long. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know the the LPS can get into areas of the brain that that. Um, it interrupt with synaptic signaling. Uh, it can interfere and it does interfere with dopamine and serotonin binding in the brain. So you start getting anxiety, depression. Um, it actually will, will get into this area called the dorsal vagal complex, which is in the stem of the brain, which actually interferes with signaling from the brain to the gut which means that you your bowels become constipated because the peristaltic movement signals don't go through. Um, it gets into the mm-hmm. pancreas and causes damage to the islet cells. I mean, it is the okay. most pervasive toxin we have to deal with, and it's an endotoxin, which is the key because we can't get away from it. Endo meaning it's made from within, right? Different from an exotoxin, like if our house has mold, we can burn that house down and move away, um, hopefully. Yep. But an endotoxin, you can't get away from it. It's always there. You can't just eat habaneros, which is the internal burning equivalent. <laughs> right. You, know? you could, but that can actually <laughs> lead to a little bit more LPS in the system. <laughs> more, not less, right? Yeah, exactly. And unfortunately, those really delicious spicy foods tend to poke holes in the lining of the gut, yeah. which lets LPS through more effectively, right? That's right. Yep. And another area, another route for LPS to get in is dirty mouths, right? Okay. I wanted to ask you this. Yeah. 
Okay. This is such a, such a, a fun question. You mentioned earlier that in Japan that uh, people have oftentimes got bacteria that let them eat uh, seaweed. Mm. And in fact, I think I mentioned that one in my books a long time ago too, because what you eat does that. In a recent interview with Trina, we talked about oral care. Mm-hmm. And I asked her straight up, does that mean that you should make out with people who have good teeth yeah. so that you'll get their healthy oral microbiome? Because your mouth is the beginning of your gut, right? Totally, yeah. So talk to me about whether we should be kissing our friends from Japan so that we can digest seaweed or whether that's a more invasive medical procedure. <laughs> I, I think if you have a friend from Japan who has a healthy oral microbiome, for sure. For 25 years, I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is senolytics. Senolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. They live for a long time, and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called Qualia Senolytic. Your podcast sponsor, Neurohacker Collective, created Qualia Senolytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Synolytic. It's upped my energy level even more, and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30 and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia Synolytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com Dave and try it risk-free for up to 100 days. Use code Dave at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave. Use code Dave. I, I think if you have a friend from Japan who has a healthy oral microbiome, for sure. I think there's there's no risk in, well, maybe a risk for them. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, there are certain tribes, for example, in New Zealand, there are people that are well known to have microbes in the, in the mouth that completely prevent carry formation and high levels of plaque formation and prevent gum disease and gum bleeding all from the microbes that you have in, in your mouth. Now, we also wow. know from studies that leaky gut, Actually, and the and the movement of LPS will actually drive gum disease because uh, LPS from the gut will move through circulation. We know we have a lot of circulation capillaries in the gums. So once LPS gets into the gums, into the gingival cavities in the gums, it'll actually cause an inflammation, which will change the types of microbes that are living in your gum tissue. And, and it'll favor organisms that create more gingivitis. Um, so stopping LPS from the gut and then in the mouth can be um, hugely important. But I think, you know, somebody that has a really healthy mouth, making out with them is always a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> Just from a scientific All right. perspective. You heard it here. Should you make out with people who have a healthy mouth? The answer is yes from a research microbiologist. Um, now, I wanted to have you on because you've done all these clinical studies. Clearly, you know how to think about stuff, which is why I like talking with you. And you work with Just Thrive mm-hmm. on unusual probiotics. So now we've gone through the kind of three major punches that your gut takes. Uh, and clearly, maybe eat less stuff that's shredding your gut and reduce polysaccharides, which we're going to get into in, in a minute here, uh, as well as um, dealing with some food allergy response type of things. So... 
Let's start with just your overall take on, okay, how of those three things that, that are causing damage, which is the one that we can mitigate most easily? And how do you like to do that using the tools that you have with, with Just Thrive or anywhere else? Yeah. So in fact, when we did our first clinical trial on this, we made it a really difficult challenge, right? So what we did is we took individuals that had bad leaky gut, um, and then we fed them things like um, a fast food breakfast, And then we fed them things like pizza from the gas station, microwave pizza from the gas station, and then measured their endotoxin level in circulation. And then, of course, looked at all of the inflammatory markers that increase on top of that. So what we saw is that they were profoundly affected by those foods in some cases. And you mentioned this earlier, that a single meal, we could measure that inflammatory response for up to two weeks. Right. So it was it was really profound. And so we said, okay, can we then fix their gut to a point where that same offending food would then no longer have an endotoxic response? And so that was the the whole premise of the study. And so we did 30 days of the spore based probiotics. And then when we repeated the study, we saw in the vast majority of the treatment group, a complete blunting of the endotoxic response, right? Even though we're feeding them that same offending food. So the conclusion to that for me is that the human system is pretty resilient, right? We can deal with a lot of stuff given that we are in the right homeostatic condition. And so we were able to repair some of the imbalance of microbes within the gut in that 30-day period. We were able to increase butyrate production. We know that the spores increase butyrate production by about 50%, and butyrate's really important for healing the gut lining. We also know that spores increase the expression of tight junction proteins. Those are the proteins that seal up the spaces in between the gut lining cells. So we were able to shore up some of the defenses within the gut and the ability to repair. And and once we were able to do that, even that really offending food did not Mm. create leaky gut, right? So if you did that, and on top of that, you cleaned up your diet to a certain degree, you eliminated foods that you knew you were sensitive to, that you tend to get a response to, or you reduce them at least, and then you kind of try to increase diversity of actual real foods uh, that are not packaged, not processed, and so on. You did that on top of taking the probiotic, you you do wonders for your gut. Can, can you guys imagine which probiotic I take every single day? <laughs> it, yes, I actually take the Just Thrive probiotic every day. It's not the only one I take, just to be super clear. I take some other very highly specialized ones, uh, including, funny enough, uh, one from Japan. <laughs> uh, but not the, not the kissing one. And um, what... What I find though is that this one is table six because I'm aware of the research on that. But when people hear spores, they usually think of mold. And this is not at all related to that. Can you talk about what a spore forming probiotic does versus a, a different one? Yeah. So, um, and, and to me, I, I absolutely love these spores. That's the microbiology nerd in me. Um, if you think about the life cycle of the, of the cell, so when, when it's not in the spore form, it looks like a lot of other bacteria. It's vulnerable to heat moisture, you know, pressure and so on, acid and all that. But these organisms, what what has happened to them is they've developed this capability of also existing outside of the body. You know, early on in the in our conversation, we talked about how the vast majority of microbes in the gut cannot exist outside of the body, but they ended up with this capability of covering themselves in a protein calcified armor like coating if they're going to leave the body, that way they can exist in the outside uh, world. That's not their ideal environment for 
indefinite amounts of time and then re-enter into the body through um, consumption, make it past the stomach acid and the bile salts because of that coating, and then go back into their normal vegetative state once they enter into the intestines. And the spore form is thought to be you know, one of the one of the criteria that's required for microbes that could have seeded the earth with building blocks of um, of cells, right? So that whole idea of panspermia, I think we might have talked about that last time. Uh, but this spore forming bacteria is, is absolutely unique and, and uh, different than anything else. In fact, I remember this uh, well because we came up with a title for the podcast. It was some like armor-plated probiotics from outer space or, or something, <laughs> right, which yeah. was also one of my favorite titles. Uh, so that panspermia idea is super, like it makes people very mad. Like, don't you know? And then they tell you a theory that is impossible to prove about where life came from. Right. You're like, no, I don't know that, but I like all of these theories. And that one's, that one's cool because it involves comets and stuff. Totally. So... We use these spore uh, spore forming things mostly because they don't die when they're in pills, and because right. they don't die when they see the acid that you may or may not have in your stomach. Right, right. And I say may not because you could have low acid. Oh wait, does that happen as we age to everyone? Yeah, mm-hmm. it does. Mm-hmm. So we'll maybe talk about acid later. But I want to go deeper with you on. What else is happening in the gut here? So you did a study that said, wow, like the gut is less leaky from these probiotics Mm -hmm. and they make more of this anti-inflammatory compound. So Mm -hmm. think of that as a rapid healing salve that you would put on uh, onto something to make it heal faster. That's butyrate or butyric acid, Mm -hmm. right? And if you guys are longtime listeners, what is one of the reasons I like grass-fed butter? Because it contains butyric acid and two studies show eating butyric acid has additional benefits different than making it in the gut itself. Mm -hmm. So my question for you is, okay, I'm taking probiotics. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm taking actually the Just Thrive spore-forming probiotics very specifically. And we have the study that say they make more butyric acid, but I have to feed them something. Mm -hmm. Right. So what would I feed them? What do they like to eat the most to grow? So they will convert. So in fact, they can convert uh, protein even into, into butyrate, which is unique uh, and interesting, but mostly it's, it's carbohydrates or fiber, really. Um, it's uh, and oligosaccharides and oligosaccharides are, are unique because oligosaccharides were the first food for our microbiome, right? Mother's milk contains like mm-hmm. 200 different types of oligosaccharides. Um, so those are really unique quintessential prebiotics for the microbes in your gut. And and many of them are highly complex where very limited groups of microbes can actually break them down. And because of that, they they feed certain groups of bacteria, especially the butyrate and short-chain fatty acid-producing bacteria, including the spores. So the spores love their um, oligosaccharides. They, they love the proteins. They will metabolize the proteins uh, as well. And they can metabolize fat to some degree as well. Now, oh, that's interesting. I didn't realize that they were fat metabolizers, the, the species in Just Thrive. Is it all, you guys, I think, have four species in there, right? This, They're all spore formers? Yep. Mm-hmm. And is one of them more of the fat eater? Because it's kind of hard to get fat eating probiotics most of the time fat kills probiotics right yeah so the bacillus subtilis is a pretty robust organism uh and it's highly adaptive it can it can metabolize almost any carbon sources um and it and it can do that with uh with with fats to a small degree as well it's almost like these tentacled aliens 
uh, quad billions of years ago, by the way, I made that up. Um, nano engineered these little things to eat almost anything and make other stuff. Totally. Uh, out who, of it. who would have ever thought, right? right? And through our course of evolution, we came to depend on that other stuff that they made, yeah. right? We built our system based on their capabilities as little production factories of things. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's really fascinating. The, um, Okay, so I'm, I'm taking these, and you talk about oligosaccharides. Now, Just Thrive has, uh, I think it's in your prebiotic. Yeah. Uh, I take that stuff, I don't want to say every single day. I, I take it most days when I travel. I probably don't. Yeah. Uh, but when I'm at home, I usually do. That's kind of the fruity-flavored one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's got oligosaccharides. And then I take, um, and it's also got some other prebiotics in it, and it's a relatively small dose. And then I take like 20, 30 grams of bulk soluble fiber. Yeah. Um, and I put one together for Bulletproof and it's primarily acacia gum and, and all of that, but, um, it does something different than what the oligosaccharides do. And the oligosaccharides, you design those for, is this for making more mucus in the gut lining? Is this for reducing IgG? I'm not sure the mechanism action other than I'm feeding the bacteria that I get from you guys that have all the studies behind them. Yeah. (laughs) So what else is going on with those ingredients in the Just Thrive prebiotic fruity stuff? Yeah. I forget what it's called. I could go grab my thing a bit. I think think it's called maybe prebiotic, Just Thrive prebiotic maybe. Um, Yeah, that's that's it. It says that right on the front. All right, keep talking. I'm going to grab it. Talk about that for a second. Okay, so yeah. So with the prebiotic, the the really important aspect of that is we call it a precision prebiotic. Now, the reason for that is we wanted to take oligosaccharides. Yeah, you found it? I go. found it. It's precision prebiotic. Aha! Uh-huh. There you go. Uh, and and that's it's the precision thing that's pretty cool. And now we can look. It's uh, it's actually all lacto oligosaccharides, fructo oligosaccharides, and xylo oligosaccharides. So there's nothing but oligosaccharides in it. That's right. Uh, which, yeah. which, so I look at that as an add-on to the other the other stuff. Now, Mister Microbiologist, are those heat stable? Can I put uh, them in hot water? Will they still work? You can. Yeah, you absolutely can. They taste um, gross in coffee. Sorry, guys. Fruity coffee doesn't do it for me. <laughs> it doesn't at all. <laughs> no. um, but you can make jello out of them if you like jello, you know, but okay. you, you can put them in smoothies for sure. Um, but but so the, the idea behind the precision part of the prebiotic is more and more of these studies are coming out showing that certain species within the microbiome are considered to be keystone species, right? Because they're they're really important in holding up the rest of the structure and function of the microbiome, or they've been shown to be really, really protective against large categories of diseases, like that one I talked about earlier, Fecalum bacteria prosnitsi, that protects against everything under the inflammatory bowel disease spectrum. And then there's other ones like Acromantia mucinophila, which protect against metabolic syndrome, right? So it's inversely correlated with metabolic syndrome. Then there's Bifidobacterium longum, which protects against all kinds of cognitive, emotional damage and so on that happens to the brain. And what we were looking for was oligosaccharides that had unique enough structures that they would specifically feed those keystone species in addition to the to the spores. So what we've done is we've actually published now, I think, two studies showing that when you add in the, the prebiotic with the spores, you not only double, more than double the effect of the spores, let's take butyrate, for example, you take butyrate production from 50% increase over baseline to 150% increase over baseline. So you're you're almost tripling the amount of butyrate. You're increasing diversity in the microbiome, and you increase the growth of all of these precision 
uh, sorry, of all of these keystone species that are extremely important for overall health and wellness, which also improves our ability to repair after damage, right? So that combination of the probiotic prebiotic is absolutely critical uh, for overall gut health. Okay. Um, I found that by taking bulk prebiotic soluble fiber, um, I quadrupled the number of species in my gut. I mm-hmm. just wasn't, despite eating unreasonable amounts of vegetables, <laughs> you know, it, I just wasn't, my diversity was not bad, mm-hmm. but you want to have a broad diversity of gut bacteria. And a lot of people say this, you should eat a, a wide variety, as many different foods as you can. And I, I want to ask you this, because I've never asked anyone this, but it seems like your gut bacteria change over the course of one or two or three days based on what you eat, right? So if every day you eat some different random goddamn food, how is your gut bacteria ever going to catch up? That, that seems like bad advice. <laughs> and throughout all of history, did you eat 47 different greens on any one day? No, you ate the whatever the heck was growing near you in that season for that two weeks before something else grew. Right. So are we really doing a favor by saying eat a wide variety of plants to feed your gut bacteria versus eat a lot of prebiotic fiber and eat a few plants for roughage? So the fiber part is the most critical part, right? That's the part that's really going to move the needle on on the diversity in the gut. And we see that when we look at tribes like the Papua New Guinea tribes or the Hadza tribe in Tanzania, they tend to have really massive diversity, three, four times the diversity of the Western population. And a, a lot of that comes from the roots and tubers that they eat, right? So they don't eat a massive variety of roots and tubers. They eat four or five staple roots and tubers, but they're eating a lot of that root and tuber. And so they tend to have really high levels of keystone species, very high levels of short chain fatty acid production. And then they have all of these gut brain protective mechanisms that we don't have anymore that we've lost over time. So yes, I would say the fiber is the biggest part of it, right? So if you can get it from a bar or drink and you can get uh, a good variety and, and dose of fiber, that's a fantastic thing. And you add in a precision prebiotic and you're targeting the keystone species, you're doing already more for your gut than the vast majority of people will do. That and I'm I'm definitely uh, making sure that I kiss all of my healthiest friends. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> you can't forget the oral microbiome. It just it's, it's for health and science. You just have to do it. I was talking with uh, Dr. Mercola. Yeah. Uh, I got to see him because he was speaking at the conference, and he was talking about how he noticed changes in his gut bacteria from. Am I allowed to say this? By the way, guys, how many times in the history of Bulletproof Radio have, heard, have you heard me say, am I allowed to say this? That's because there is rampant censorship going on right now. Like there's a hashtag about the immune system. And if you mention it, it gets blocked and they shadow ban your account on Instagram. So I'm being very careful. And yeah. by the way, t.me slash Asprey official, that would be my Telegram uh, account where I actually post stuff that's a little bit more truthful and transparent. So... Um, all right, I just got all distracted by what I was going to say there because I'm like, can I say this? <laughs> See, this is the pernicious thing happening in science right now where you're going, right. oh, can I talk about science or not? So where was I? Mercola. And- ah, he said that when he 
did a specific treatment from a guy named Frank Schallenberger, who mm. was a, a major source of information for my book on, that was in my anti-aging book, mm. um, who's a father of ozone therapy, which is still legal to talk about this week. And he recommended nebulizing. Mm -hmm. See the pause I put in there so that the AI things will spell it wrong? I'm not even kidding. I'm doing this as we go <laughs> on. Interesting. Um, yeah, a, a uh, medical ingredient, uh, which is called hydrogen peroxide. Mm -hmm. And you might have seen some of my posts about that before they got taken down by um, authorities um, who didn't like them. Um, but anyway, you can put that stuff in a nebulizer and you can breathe it and it changes your lung biome. Mm-hmm. Right, And he noticed changes in his lung biome from doing that and probably also in his nasal biome, which you also, by the way, guys can get with if you do the, the I called it the bulletproof sinus rinse way back in the day. It's on DaveAsprey.com now. Um, but basically changing the, the nasal bacteria and the lung bacteria was having profound effects on his gut bacteria. Mm -hmm. What is going on with that, why would breathing something that changes your lung bacteria change your gut bacteria? Yeah, so there is something called the gut-lung axis, which is really interesting. And as it turns out, the microbes in the lung have a mechanism by, to talk to the microbes in the gut. And that's actually a really important part of a lung infectious process, right? So let's say you get a, a, a virus that enters into your lung and it starts causing an infection in your lung. The first thing to notice the presence of that virus are the microbes in your gut. So if you have the right, sorry, the microbes in your lungs. So if you have the right type of microbes in your lungs, they will notice the presence of that virus and they will actually send a message to the microbes in your gut that are sitting on all the immune tissue in your gut and say, hey, there's a virus in the lungs. We need you to recruit the immune system to come to this area, right? And so then the microbes in the gut will send signals to move the immune system to recruit it to come to the lungs. Because here's the interesting thing about that whole system, right? We've, we've created this unique default because we don't actually want the immune system constantly active in the lungs, right? Because we're constantly breathing in things from the outside environment. And if the immune system is responding to everything that we breathe in, we're going to have severe asthma all the way down to chronic respiratory disease and all kinds of things, right? So we don't want the immune system always active in the lungs. What we want is the immune system sitting by and ready, and then a signal to be given to them when they need to get to the lungs. And as it turns out, that signal comes from bacteria in the lungs, talking to bacteria in the gut, and then bacteria in the gut sending the immune cells to the lungs when there's an infection. So if you change the, the microbes in your lungs, you can influence the microbes that are in your gut and vice versa, right? And of course, that kind of change uh, that he's talking about can occur. Another simple way of, of changing the microbes in your lungs is to stop mouth breathing, right? So people who- <laughs> You guys heard this on here before? Right? <laughs> so cool. Keep going. I love this. Yeah, Right? It's, it's so simple. And so even things like taping and so on that people do, because as we breathe all of this gram-negative bacteria in our mouth, our mouth is loaded with microbes. And if you're not kissing your Japanese friend, it may be bad microbes, right? So you're breathing all of these microbes into your lungs all the time and causing a dysbiosis in the lungs. Um, and, you know, and that's likely why we have such an epidemic of asthma in our country, right? That's a, one of the drivers of that. There's something else that we've got to bring up because it's so complex because of all these different systems cross-talking at all the same time. We have a big problem with environmental toxic mold. Mm -hmm. yeah. And when bacteria 
is exposed to the mycotoxins from toxic mold. So these are basically penicillin <laughs> or any one of the other antibiotics that mold makes. Right. The bacteria freak out and they make a biofilm. Yeah. And the biofilm makes a lot of LPS because it's stressed. It's like, let me pump out some toxins. So one of the symptoms of breathing toxic mold in a home, and this is a well-documented symptom that you have to treat if you're a mold physician, like Ann Shippey, who's been on the show, um, or Jill Carnahan, or, or other um, others who focus on that space, is that um, you end up getting this film in the sinuses mm -hmm. that produces LPS right next to the brain. You get brain fog. You can treat mold in the body, but if you don't treat the bacteria, you, you have an issue. I think we're getting lung biofilms from toxic mold homes. Mm -hmm. Am I crazy? No, not at all. I mean, the lung has okay. a mucosal lining, right? So that's exactly similar to the upper respiratory tract, the airways, the gut, all of that has a mucosal lining. So not at all. Yeah, there's biofilms there. And and here's the other thing about the, the mold toxicity is that um, there are pathogens that have learned to work with mold to together form a stronger team than just the mold itself or the pathogen itself, right? So some of those pathogens are like Staphylococcus air, uh, aureus, right? Or streptoc uh, Streptococcus. They tend to work well with mold and they will actually form biofilms that both hold the mold and the bacteria together to try to protect it from other microbes and the immune system as well. So when you're exposed to lots of toxic mold and mold toxins itself, you're going to actually get other secondary bacterial pathogens also growing within the system, which just amplifies the problem significantly. Another thing that happens with toxic mold and certainly happens very reliably with some species of mold in my case. And yes, guys, I have it dialed down to like different flavors of molds because, well, I pay attention. Um, the first night, if I'm exposed to really bad stuff, like a weird dreams and a nosebleed. Mm -hmm. Okay. And there's a different explanations I'm not going to get into on this for why those happen. Uh, but then the next day, you're like, oh, something really bad is happening uh, uh, in my gut. And uh, then I'm going to have wrecked digestion for a week. And the third or fourth day, I'm going to have really bad eruptions on my skin, like like subterranean pimples that take a long time to heal. And of right. course, all of this time, like I grow a set of man boobs and I have love handles, which is systemic inflammation, right? Yeah. But why does it feel like the lining of my gut is likely shedding when I'm exposed to mold like that? What is going on physiologically? Do you have a good map of that? Yeah, absolutely. So when you start getting dysbiosis, um, which is a imbalance of m microbes and you start getting mold overgrowth or you're starting to get inflammation that's driving opportunistic pathogen overgrowth, right? So there are lots of opportunistic pathogens sitting around in your body that have learned to look for inflammatory or stress signals as the cue to, to um, turn on their virulence factors, right? That's their opportunity to take over when the system is under compromise, uh, in a compromised state. And so what tends to happen when you get that kind of toxicity is you start getting an overgrowth of opportunistic organisms. And one of the ways that those opportunistic organisms survive is to try to go deeper into your mucosal lining in your gut, right? So you've got this thick mucosal lining in your gut. Most of the microbes are sitting on the outer surface 
of it, and then the inner surface of it, which is the closest to the intestinal lining of the gut, needs to be relatively sterile. There can't be a lot of microbes there. So what these opportunistic organisms are doing, they're making enzymes to eat away at your mucus lining so they can go deeper and deeper into the mucus lining, thereby protecting themselves. So then you start getting this liquidation, if you will, and a, a sloughing off of that top layer of mucus. So you may be able to notice that when you go to the bathroom, for example, right? That, that may be something that occurs. Yeah, in fact, a, a good test with a microscopy of a fecal matter is always going to look for mucus. Because mm-hmm. you have mucus in there, you got a problem. And of course, there is mucus present at that time, but not usually the rest of the time. Right. That's exactly uh, so, right. And you see that with parasitic infections, worm infections, all kinds of things. You see that mucus layer coming out, right? And on sometimes there may be some blood associated with that mucus as well, because now you've actually um, caused a damage to the tissue um, that's under sitting under the mucus layer itself. One of the things that has always intrigued me is the studies, I think I wrote about these in the Bulletproof Diet, about uh, germ-free mice. These mm-hmm. are mice raised with no gut bacteria. And they're like super mice. They can do whatever they want. And they're like the honey badgers of mice until you put them in a place with bacteria. Mm-hmm. And, um, then they do give a, you know what? So what is up? Well, like, can I be a germ-free mouse? I don't know. We already live in bubbles <laughs> thanks to government stuff. I, I mean, is there a benefit to that? What would happen to your immune system if you didn't have a microbiome? In, in fact, studies on germ-free mice have really revealed the relationship between the microbiome and the immune system, right? And there's one study I talk about a lot that was published in March of 2020, where they took these mice and, and they refer, uh, refer to them as nobiotic mice as well uh, in some papers. So they take these mice that have all of the faculties of a healthy mouse, meaning they have a full immune system, all the T cells, B cells, macrophages, all the immune tissue and all that, but they have no microbes in them. And so then they infect this mouse with a virus. And what they find is that the the mouse's dendritic cells and macrophages and all that sit there and just watch the host cells getting infected. They don't respond to the presence of the infectious virus at all. And then when they implant in a microbiome, all of a sudden you get the response, right? So they've been measuring that to see what is that relationship. Yeah, and as it turns out, it's the microbes within the microbiome that are providing the signal for the immune system to respond to the presence of something. So they create what we call the threshold tone of this of the immune system's need to respond. So the reason for that is similar to the lung thing that I talked about earlier, where um, we need to have a certain degree of tolerance to the environment that we live in, right? So um, the big part of it is we want our immune system to respond when it needs to respond, but the biggest issue is we don't want it responding when it shouldn't respond, right? Because having the immune system responding too much is a big, is as equally a big of a problem as not responding. And so it's, it's the microbes that dictate to the immune system what is really a problem and when it needs to respond to something. And when a viral infection comes in and you have a healthy microbiome, the first thing the microbes in that region release is interferon gamma. And once interferon gamma is released, then the dendritic cells and macrophages go, oh shit, there's an infection. All right, let's go. If they don't see that interferon gamma signal, they don't respond. They'll sit there and let the host get infected, right? So that's that's wow. so interesting when you look at it. It, it, it is quite fascinating. And it, I'm sure people listening is going, that was enough science that I don't know what to do. 
<laughs> you know, I, I don't want to get sick. I, I want to, you know, have a healthy layer of mucus in my gut. I want to have the good guys growing. I don't want the bad guys to grow. I don't want LPS. Uh, and frankly, it tends to be a little bit overwhelming. And, and guys, you could spend your entire career in microbiology and still not know everything to do. Is that a true statement? A hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. Mm-hmm. So the first thing to understand is it is a complex self-managing system. Your whole body is, in fact, the entire planet is one of those things. Mm -hmm. So that's why when I started this definition, change the environment around you and inside of you to have full control of your own biology. That's the definition of biohacking. Yeah. So we have, you know, wizards of poop. I I don't know. (laughs) Wizards (laughs) of gut bacteria on here. Uh, And... Uh, but there's a lot we don't know. So what we're doing here is recognizing that this system is mostly a black box. Yeah. And and as a hacker, a black box is a system and you don't know what's in there because you're trying to break in. So all you can do is like push on it and send a signal and see what comes out. And eventually you realize if I do these five things, even if I don't know the guts, it'll do what I want it to do. Right. Yeah. But you don't know which of those five things in combination. But you know, if you don't do all five, or maybe you only do four, and this is what biohacking is. So you're massaging and manipulating a system without knowing exactly where and how it's going to go yeah. in order to get the direction that you want. And that's where we are. But we know so much more now than when I was trying to solve this problem. Like, oh, I don't know, there's an environmental component. And I'm eating tons of kale and tons of whole grains because they told me whole foods were good for me. Mm-hmm. Right. And you're like, okay, let's throw out the obvious stuff that we know is garbage, but everything else, it's okay to not know everything. It's okay to not do everything, but you have to do enough that, like, oh, wow, I have the symptoms of less inflammation in a gut that works. Okay. What are those symptoms and how do I measure them? Yeah. So the biggest the biggest things uh, for people is really their their um, daily, you know, kind of how they feel in their digestive system, right? So people have gotten very accustomed to the idea that discomfort in the digestive tract is normal, right? So they're like, ah, oh, I'm fine. I get some bloat. I get a little loose bowel here and there. I get cramping, but that's normal. You know, that's just how my gut has always been. And one of the things that I want people to really understand is that you don't have to feel that way, right? And of course, you know, you have one big night, you're going to go out and party and drink and hang out. Yes, you might feel that way. If you travel overseas periodically, you're going to feel that way. But that's not normal to feel that way throughout throughout your your existence. Also, things like energy levels, ability to sleep, right? Rashes that pop up on your skin, um, you know, sensitivity to things like your environmental allergies, food sensitivities. All of these things are a symptom of all of this dysfunction and inflammation going on in your gut. And one big one is anxiety and lack of stress management because the gut is really the core of, of the um, HPA activation cycle. Right. So that's the stress management cycle that we have within the system. So all of these things put together should dictate to you that, okay, something at the core is going wrong. And even though these are some of the things I feel and they're not that severe, this is the same pathology that leads to long term significant issues. Right. So you feel it as tiredness, anxiety and all that way before you feel it as Crohn's disease. Right. So that's a that's the pathway. 
Wow. Uh, what about labs? Okay. So I'm, I'm sitting around going, all right, I'm going to invest in getting some data to see if my gut healing protocols, whether you know, taking the probiotic that, that just thrive uh, or taking uh, prebiotics, the oligosaccharides that you guys make or um, bulk prebiotic fiber and maybe something like the inner fuel stuff that I put together for Bulletproof, you're going to do that. You're going to eat bone broth, what, whatever. Like there's countless stuff you could do. Right. You do all that. You're saying, all right, maybe you got here before, but you definitely want to get your after. Hmm. Number one lab I should order. Yeah. So if you, so let, well, we can break it down into two, two categories of labs. So number one labs, if you're looking at microbiome changes, um, there are a number of stool tests out there, right? So we work with one called Biome FX, which is a whole genome sequencing one that gives you a lot of insight into it. But really where the rubber hits the road is what's happening in your blood, right? Because whatever's happening in your gut is translating to impact in your blood, in your circulation. In fact, about at any given time, about 50% of the molecules floating around in your blood come from your gut microbiome in some way or the other. So I would do, you know, your standard blood panel tests, right? Looking at things like inflammatory mediators, because at the end of the day, all of this dysfunction leads to inflammation and it's inflammation that drives all of these issues, right? Inflammation is the biggest driver of aging, Inflammation is the biggest driver of most chronic illnesses. Inflammation yes. is the biggest driver of dysfunction in the, in the brain, in the organ systems, in the heart, in the skin, everything else. So if you're looking for the, the end point that's really important, I would look at inflammation. You know, and there's so many ways of looking at inflammation, right? So there's so many types of tests you can do. Uh, your doctor can do very cheap ones like CRP. Or you can do very right. complex, right? Just HSCRP, right? Just simple one. There you go, guys. Yeah. For 10 years, who's been telling you three lab tests you need? Homocysteine, which is the genetic methylation problem, C-reactive protein, because you might have an infection problem. And I don't care if it's your root canals, whether it's your gum disease or it's something going on with your dysbiosis, it's something that's likely growing in there. And then LPPLA2, because everyone told you to be afraid of cholesterol. And if that's a problem, that'll tell you it's a problem, right? So, you could do a CRP test and say, I fixed my gut, my CRP went down, hooray. But if you do a CRP test and your CRP levels are the same, but you feel like your gut's fixed because you feel better and you don't clear the room every time after you eat, and so maybe something else is keeping CRP up. Sure. Is there a marker maybe of LPA that you might LPS. want to look for, LPS so, in the well, blood? Yeah, so you cannot do a commercial LPS test. There isn't one out there. There's research tools for studying LPS. Now, some labs, like Cyrex Labs, for example, will do an LBP test. That's that LPS binding protein that I talked about. Yes. You know, if you have a lot of LPS, you're going to have elevated LPB, uh, LBP as well. So they'll do an immunological assay say for LBP levels. That's another thing you can look at. Uh, but once LPS is in your system and when it causes damage, it's elevating uh, really key cytokines. So there's, there's three that we use as surrogate markers for LPS damage in the body. One, one of the cytokines is called interleukin-6. The other one's called interleukin-1-beta. And then the third one is called um, soluble CD14. Right. So if you okay. do, yeah, if you do any of those, you're getting a real clue into the cellular level inflammatory damage that's occurring in your body. Now, this is so weird because there's a really popular virus right now. It's like the Rihanna of viruses and, and we no longer speak its name. Right. Um, 
because it is anointed as the virus to end all viruses. Uh, and if you guys don't know what I'm talking about, it, it's also named after a beer. Right. Was that was that a Corona beer you were drinking right there? I wish. It's no, a, this Topo Chico. Yeah, okay. I love this water. It's so good. <laughs> I, I must have been confused. I don't know why that came to mind. But you guys know what I'm talking about here, right? Uh, some kind of magic virus. Mm. Anyway, what does it do when you get an inflammatory cytokine storm? IL-6. Mm-hmm. The one you just talked about. The same one that your gut bacteria raises. Yep. Right. One. And here's a couple other things IL-6 does, right? So IL-6 triggers the HPA axis. So when you have a high levels of IL-6, it's constantly triggering the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, causing more and more release of cortisol. IL-6 also causes the reduction in what we call glucocorticoid receptors, which are supposed to bind the cortisol and, and reduce the amount in circulation, and thereby triggering a feedback loop to reduce inflammation. So IL-6 screws up that whole system of cortisol management. IL-6, in this two big studies called the Boston-Dublin study that was done at the end of 2020, where they were looking at thousands of patients that suffered from this Rihanna of, of uh, viruses, and, and they were looking at what biomarker that they could use to predict the most severe responses to to this virus um, infection. And what they found was that there was one thing, and that was serum IL-6 levels. If your IL-6 levels were high when you got infected, then your risk for hospitalization and even death was way higher (laughs) than if it wasn't, right? And this is a massive study between a research institute in Boston and one in Dublin, and they worked together on it. It was so clear. The data is right there. Guys, in the fourth week of... The current, uh, am I allowed to say it, it's, it rhymes with uh, slam-demic? <laughs> uh, I, I don't want anything to be censored here. But uh, uh, in the fourth week of this, I wrote a comprehensive paper about how to manage IL-6 because it's, it's common and a few people in the Upgrade Collective probably saw it. I received this mystical warning letter about how that, that wasn't okay. And hmm. uh, if you guys Google around, you'll, you might be able to find copies of it floating in circulation. And if you're following me on Telegram, you might find uh, uh, a version of it there. Um, that'll be going up. Uh, it's probably already up. Uh, but uh, that's t.me slash Official uh, is the URL for that. Uh, but... Is it a safe thing to say that if people had lower but normal IL-6 levels, they're less likely to die of all causes? Absolutely. All-cause mortality, for sure. Because elevated IL-6 is present in the vast majority of chronic illnesses, right? It's it's no secret. It's a, it's like the mother of inflammatory <laughs> cytokines, right? Because IL-6 yes. not only by itself is an inflammatory cytokine, but it triggers the release of dozens of other inflammatory cytokines in very specific tissues. And and that's been a target for us. So in at least four of our published studies, we measure IL-6 reduction. And what we see with the spore-based probiotics that we can bring down and and create healthy IL-6 levels. So, huh. It's almost like if we reduce IL-6, we reduce systemic inflammation and almost every one of the practices that I've been teaching you guys in the Upgrade Collective and listeners and on the blog for 10 years, at some level, if we did studies, is going to reduce IL-6. I don't think we have a study of mouth taping in IL-6. Mm-hmm. If you had to bet, would you bet that it reduces IL-6? Oh, totally, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, if you're saying IL-6, you know, the, the donuts are on IL-6, no, it's I as in igloo, 
L as in love and six as in after five, but before seven. So <laughs> right. uh, there you go. And it's a cheap test. I mean, any lab can do IL-6 testing in your, uh, in your system. So it, it's great to keep an eye okay. on your IL-6. Now, I'm going to add another thing in here that makes it a little bit more complex. The other major... Uh, issue is is histamine, mm-hmm. right? You, and people with long, oh, what's that thing called? Long it rhymes with Rovid. Um, <laughs> uh, but that that one, they have histamine intolerance and mast cell overactivation issues. And yeah. and when histamine hits a mast cell, or I don't know when LPS hits a mast cell, if yeah. you're allergic to LPS, what we talked about earlier, mast cells degranulate. And when they degranulate, they release heparin, which causes blood thinning, those nosebleeds I talked about before. But it, they also release about 100 other really nasty compounds that wreak havoc because they're, oh my God, there's a bad bacteria right here. Let me just nuke it. Yeah. So you end up getting these really bad uh, things throughout the body. Uh, hives would be an example of that. So if we were to look at the effect of gut bacteria and histamine, you guys remember that chapter in the Bulletproof Diet? It was there. <laughs> so what have you seen from spore-forming bacteria, uh, the ones that, the Just Thrive ones that I do take, mm-hmm. um, you know, full disclosure, whatever there, um, what have you seen around histamine prevention? Because some bacteria make histamine, some eat histamine. Mm-hmm. What's the story with spore bacteria and histamine? So spores are interesting. They've been shown to be able to metabolize histamine, which is a which is an interesting effect that they have uh, within the gut. Now, in our clinical trials, we haven't looked at the histamine response yet, but when you look at the mechanisms surrounding histamine response, right? So when you look at activation of things like um, granulocytes and so on, what we tend to see is an inflammatory pathology that is reduced as it, it would relate to reducing kind of histamine, taurine type of inflammatory uh, signaling from the from the gut microbiome. So even though we haven't studied histamine specifically, my my guess would be that we would have a measurable impact on uh, people with elevated and intolerance levels to histamine itself. Okay. So convincing evidence, but we don't know that it's going to calm mast cells. But right. what I know about mast cells is about every six to nine months, they get uh, uh, rebuilt or mm-hmm. refreshed or renewed. They die and get replaced like most cells in the body. Yep. So if you can go six to nine months with less activation, the new ones who come up are likely to be less pissed off. And over time, you can reduce your sensitivity. Yep. So perhaps fixing your gut and then going over the course of a couple of years, it can take a while to heal some of these things. You can probably get less activation. And that's certainly something I'd be looking at if I had long uh, <coughs> throvid mm-hmm. uh, or something like that. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And now we also know there there is some evidence showing that when you have low diversity in your microbiome and your gut microbiome and, and thereby you have low levels of things like secretory IgA and so on, you will actually get more mast cell recruitment to the lining of the gut than you would if you had high diversity, right? So that's one of the defense mechanisms that the body puts in place. It goes, hey, we have low levels of secretory IgA. It's hard for us to defend this very crowded uh, gate, if you will, called the intestinal lining. So we're gonna recruit other immune cells to the area to help protect, and you start getting lots of mast cell recruitment to the gut lining. Once you get mast cell recruitment to the gut lining, they're going to rear their ugly head. They're going to do their job when they come in contact with things, right? So um, that's another um, role in which, like, uh, the microbiome can drive things like allergies and hypersensitivity responses and all that just by bringing these mast cells to that area. 
Um, I think one of the reasons my gut lining would degranulate or would shed was because of mast cell degranulation when I would get exposed to mold. Mold triggers broad spectrum uh, histamine activation and mm-hmm. mast cells throughout. And so the gut lining is studded with those because my IL-6 levels were too high. And you could see why my life kind of sucked back then and all the brain fog that comes from it. And you can see why a lot of the stuff that I arrived at uh, in the Bulletproof Diet has stood the test of time, right? right? The, the higher quantities of vegetables, fixing the gut, collagen, all this stuff. As a biohacker, I can't tell you which one did it because it wasn't just one. Right. It goes back to that black box, the systems biology thing like that. And I, I really appreciate the work that you're doing because you're actually opening up the edges of the black box. So you're peeking in there and you're going to be able to tell me, take more of this one, less of that one. Pushing this button is way right. more likely to work than the one that I stumbled onto when I was desperate and spent stupid amounts of money fixing it. Totally. Right. Yeah. Totally. Uh, and I, I think, I think you're doing great work with Just Thrive. I, like I said, I do use both the Precision Prebiotic. It's different than the prebiotics that I've put together. It's in fact, there's no ingredient overlap at all. I don't think, at least, no active ingredient overlap. No, and yours are fibers, which are great. So the combination again, that's yeah. doing a couple of different, you know, a few different things together. The combo would be quite powerful. Yeah, and in cold water, yours tastes way better, and it mixes better too. <laughs> so it's like it's the fruity flavor thing you put with ice, and it's fine. Right. <laughs> um, and then I do every morning. Uh, I take uh, I take the uh, the Just Thrive probiotics, and I take them with my bulletproof coffee. Right, and I do that because they don't care. Right. <laughs> they're they're the one probiotics like I don't care, and there's usually prebiotics in there anyway. Mm-hmm. But um, warm or hot coffee and fat, especially. MCT oil is likely to harm most probiotics. You have to take them ahead of time and let them get into the gut. I don't worry about it with the Just Thrive. So right. that's my practice in the morning. I, I think it's it's a good idea. So that said, thank you for doing this work. I I would love to have you back on sometime. We'll talk about maybe brains in particular. Ooh, There's some yeah. stuff around dendritic sprouting, uh, yeah. which is one of my uh, fetishes, actually. Dendritic <laughs> sprouting is, is <laughs> microbiology <laughs> jokes. <I'm> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, it's always, always a pleasure to get a chance uh, to throw out with, to chat with you. Yeah. And uh, I would just say, guys, the if, if you look at this going, my brain just exploded. Uh, I don't know what to do. Remember that part about do stuff that makes you feel better. It, there's no perfection possible here because we don't know what perfect is. Okay. You could play with this for the rest of your life and always get a little bit better. And maybe that just is fun. I kind of think that stuff is fun. I'm going to be playing with this for the rest of my life because, you know, what else are you going to do? Uh, but you don't have to, to be a highly functional human being if you're desperate like I was. Um, and you're like, I'm tired of being fat. I'm tired of being tired. I want my energy back. That is a much lower bar than being perfect, way lower. So don't stress. You don't need any more cortisol and IL-6, right? You just don't. Oh. So try this stuff, see what works. Cut out the stuff. The sandpaper against your treadmill might be a first step, right? Yeah, some probiotics would be a good idea. The Just Thrive stuff with the, those species is very well studied by this man, <laughs> 
Um, so I, I find that highly credible, right? And then uh, you can look at their immune support. There's an IgG product, uh, which I have used. And then there's a thing for mucosal barrier strength called mm-hmm. Just Thrive Gut Fortify. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, we talked about the precision prebiotic. Uh, for me, I always do the probiotics. I usually do the prebiotic. And I have bottles of Gut Fortify and Ultimate IgG. And I take those some days, not other days. I don't take almost any supplement every day except for the basics like magnesium and ADK. But all of these are in my rotation and some of them more frequently than others. So if you're on a budget, like I think I'd start with the probiotics. Is that what you'd recommend as well? Is that kind of the most important? Yeah, 100% start with the probiotic. That's foundational, right? That's important. And then everything else will just be a really positive add-on to it. But do the probiotic, that's the key. Okay, Yep. So Kieran, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Yep. And I always, good, there is a deal. Uh, I never, I, I know I always ask for one, but justthrivehealth.com, use code ASPRI. You guys are giving listeners 15% off. And guys, here's the deal. I want you to be healthier. I want you to actually get paid money to be healthier. Right now, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so I would like you to get healthier for free and I can help you do that. Like get better sleep, intermittent fasting costs less than breakfast. But there are some things like getting um, probiotics. It actually does take money, but at least you save 15%. So um, it's, it's my job to find the stuff that's most likely to work. So you don't meander a path of years and hundreds of thousands of dollars the way I did. I think this way passes uh, the sniff test and the usage test after years of me using it. So there you go. JustThriveHealth.com. Use code Asprey. Any final words for our listeners? Oh, I forgot to ask for questions. Shoot. Do you guys need questions? I don't see any major questions here. Oh, Patricia has her hand up. I think we have to we have to take at least one question from the card. Right, the questions are there, so we have to ask. All them. right. Patricia, your hand is up. What do you have to say? So the historical you know, um, information that we got was we were supposed to have 10 to 14 different strains of bacteria, ideally 20 to 30 CFUs. You know, you wanted to have enteric coatings so that it didn't break down in the stomach, but in the, the small intestine. And then the more research came out about, um, you know, to create diversity um, about the sporebiotics, et cetera, the four or five strains of bacillus, um, bacteria. Um, so is it just, is that just an evolution? And then obviously those strains are much more um, hardy, so they don't break down in the stomach. Should we not ever take a probiotic with all the other different strains in it that aren't present in a spore, a spore biotic? Yeah, no, I'm happy to answer the question. You know, and I and I think Dave put some of these um, ideas in a in a very elegant manner. Meaning, you know, if it makes you feel good and it makes you feel better, then you could certainly take it. Right? There's no really hard and fast rules here. Like I would never come on and say never take this kind of probiotic um, because we don't know everything, right? So, but but we do know that the spore-based probiotics do some very particular functions within the gut that are really foundationally important for a healthy gut. And things like, you know, resolving the, the, the leakiness in the gut, improving the butyrate production, 
modulating some of the microbes in the in the microbiome to improve diversity and so on. Those are critical functions that these spore-based probiotics do that are really important for overall health. Now, I cannot say that your other 15-strain uh, probiotic does nothing for you, right? I don't know that. I don't know what's happening in your gut, and I don't know what product you're taking. So if it helps you, if you feel like it does help you, then by all means, continue to take it. Uh, but yes, we have evolved pass a lot of those kind of initial ideas of what makes a good probiotic a good probiotic. And we touched on that earlier, how the technology to understand the microbiome has evolved leaps and bounds in the last just even four or five years, let alone 10 years ago. So our ability to understand the impact probiotics have in the gut have dramatically changed in the last few years than it was 10 years ago. So certainly some of those ideas are definitely old ideas, the whole like 17 strains, 15 strains, you know, 50 billion CFU, 100 billion CFU. Those are just kind of arbitrary numbers that were set up as guesses. And now we can test those theories and those ideas much better. And we come to know that, you know, those are really kind of arbitrary, um, you know, arbitrary uh, parameters that were set up. So um, absolutely take your, you know, take the spores. You can rotate them with the other thing, the other probiotic, if that's making you, if that feels good. Um, I don't, I don't see a big issue with that. Would you, do you recommend taking them with food or without? The spores you always take with food. Yeah. And, but Patricia, I have spent probably $200,000 on probiotics uh, over the course of my life trying to fix my gut. Uh, and I have been largely disappointed mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because you think, oh, like here's a study, this one's going to work, but they don't grow unless you have the right stuff there. And it, like you said earlier, you take them at the wrong time. Um, oh, I took them with food, my stomach acid came out, they killed my you know $5 pill probiotic from whatever research lab. <laughs> right? mm -hmm. So uh, I would say the prebiotic side of the conversation plus armor-plated probiotics uh, it is a really good idea. Mm -hmm. And the prebiotics for me, even with a handful of probiotics uh, that I, I take on occasion, um, until I started really upping my prebiotics, I just didn't have the number of species or the the mix of species that I wanted. And so that was part of the journey that I took in, uh, in Superhuman was uh, documenting that and showing the difference in uh, diversity mm -hmm. there. The diversity didn't come from eating more types of foods. The diversity came from eating more of the stuff that good bacteria grow on. Uh, so I, I think play around with it. And it's such profound advice. Like if it works, you may find one that eats histamine or one that makes glutathione uh, and go, wow, this is so cool. I know it, I took it for a month and it changed everything, right? And you and I might not even know what those are. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it's okay to play around. But if you're not feeding them with the substrate, my experience has been I wasted a lot of money until I understood that I needed I needed to feed them the right way. It, it, does that match what you've seen as a microbiologist? A hundred percent, yeah. Because again, a lot of the functionality of these bacteria are dependent on their source of fuel to be able to metabolize things and produce things and so on. So if they're not getting their fibers and their prebiotics in there to do their metabolic magic that they do, then they're not really functional in the system, right? So they're, they're starving themselves. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really critical point with the prebiotics okay. and, the, and the fiber. Awesome. Well, guys, thank you for, uh, or well, Patricia, thank you for the questions and Upgrade Collective. Thank you for being on. This is one of those information packed, awesome, 
awesome interviews and thank you for the extra time as well, Kieran. Of course. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it's always it's always fun to talk to a really smart guy who's done the clinical studies and to have you poke holes, not in my gut lining, uh, but in my <laughs> line of thinking, so it can be more teachable for everyone. Absolutely. Thanks again, guys. Thank you, JustThriveHealth.com. Use code Asprey. Give this stuff a try. See if it works. If it doesn't, don't do it anymore. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Thank you. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.